Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. You know, Robin Williams always did take my breath away. Um, There was a way in which the kind of comedy that he did very much derived from the work of Jonathan Winters, whom I admired as a boy, was just special and and inspired and ready to go almost any possible place. And a lot of people try to do things like that. I don't think anybody did them with such a spark of genius. But then the question becomes, at what cost? At what cost indeed? So working off a 2018 biography of Robin Williams, here is our show. Hi, this is Colin. You're about to hear a show about Robin Williams. It's actually a show from 2018 that was about Robin Williams and George Carlin, but we've kind of altered it to make it just about Robin Williams. We did it actually on the day that the world found out that Coco, the famous signing gorilla, had died. That's going to be very important. The trigger for the show is Dave Itzkoff's splendid biography of Robin Williams, which is called Robin. A very interesting book, more than most biographies. It has kind of a spring, summer, fall, winter cycle to it. I mean, I guess all of our lives are springs, summers, falls, and winters. But this book, I think, has that very, very acutely. So get ready to hear about the Robin Williams you didn't necessarily know, the Robin Williams who, by the way, would have turned 70 this year. We thought in order to have a comedian talk also about Robin Williams, it would make sense to have Carolyn Payne, a frequent guest on the show, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. If I didn't say so already, David Skoff is also a cultural reporter for the New York Times. I think maybe the best thing to do before we even start talking to Dave is just to kind of refresh your mind about Robin Williams. Just stumbling around today, looking at various things on the interwebs, I came across one of his appearances with Craig Ferguson. And I think it sort of illustrates some very specific things about Robin Williams. So, Betsy, let's just play that clip. When did you get married? What day is it? <laughs> Pretty recently. It was yeah, like it was well, like after a honeymoon, I'm a little low on protein. I hear you. <laughs> did you have to go to... Did you have to go all the way to protein? <laughs> Could you have just been, I'm a little tired of protein? You have to go to protein. I'm a little tired. I'm running low on fluid. <laughs> when you hit 60, everything... And what have we got left? Yeah. Give me some mucus, anything. We ran out of sperm. Let's go, people. Blood, urine, let's go. I like it when you're here. I can relax. You know. It's a bit like a Tourettean hotline. <laughs> is there a thing, is there like a positive Tourette's? I know sometimes in the, the negative Tourette's, are like the people say things like, I'm not Yeah. But is there a positive Tourette's where someone goes like, those pants are slimming? <laughs> do you think that when Thanksgiving's coming up, do you think that's the rapture for turkeys? <laughs> that every year they go, get ready. <laughs> Some of us are leaving. <laughs> and then the ones who don't get taken up are like, ah! 
Well, they're like that anyway, so yeah, it's all right. right. Uh, another thing about that particular interview is that an awful lot of it, uh, for an awful lot of it, uh, uh, Robin Williams is, perhaps unsurprisingly, talking back to Craig Ferguson in essentially Craig Ferguson's accent. Um, so, David Scoff, um, this, you know, this is latter-day Robin Williams, and in, in an odd way, uh, it still resembles early-day Robin Williams. In that sense, anyway, that sense that we get, which you kind of expose as somewhat uh, illusion uh, in your book, in that sense of this person who's just always on, always operating, you know, at 110%. Well, you can tell from that clip that, yeah, he still had a lot of vitality. And also, I think he was very much turned on by other people who were also uh, spontaneous in the way that, that he was. Uh, Craig Ferguson was a great kind of uh, foil to him in, in those appearances that it was it, – it's a, it's a little bit like a, you know, a, a prize fighter coming back into the ring and uh, he has to prove himself. He has to show that I'm just as funny and just as off the cuff as, as Ferguson. And you can hear it again and even in that conversation, there are moments that are I think genuinely ad-libbed and then a couple that are probably uh, lines that he had in his back pocket. Just kind of ready to deploy uh, that that sound uh, off the cuff, but uh, but you're right. It's it's that's that was not who he was uh, 24 hours a day. That was really just for the benefit of the cameras and I think uh, for the studio audience that that could react to what he was doing. So speaking of him not being that 24 hours a day, I I just want to also say that one of the things that Williams could do, and actually Carolyn, I think you would confirm this too, is. I mean, listen to him. He goes to he goes from this conversation that's kind of going on inside his body, where there's some like office manager demanding more fluids be directed to this uh, clause of honeymoon sex, to positive Tourette's, to turkeys, and you know he's not really even setting up jokes the way a comedian typically would, right? He's he does it a little bit, but he almost. There's no sense of timing. He's just going to go there, and you're going to run after him. Yeah, it's just a rapid fire, and I think that that's something that you can't even imitate. It was. It's a quality that he had that is so unique, uh, where he could just live in this stream of consciousness and just spew these things out. And they were. They all like sometimes as a comedian, you you throw something out there and it just isn't landing, and you need that buildup or you need to rework it. But it felt like Robin Williams just had this spontaneous ability to just kind of always hit bullseye. Right. Or, and it was or, that he. And also like it, it, he would you know, curate this stuff and, and create it. And it just kind of like lived inside of him. But it was so amazing how he could just spew these like wild. It was like a fireworks show, like the grand finale of a fireworks show was Robin Williams just constantly in performance. Right. And when you're moving that fast, if something doesn't land, you just keep going. Anyway, so uh, Dave, um, the, one of the questions then becomes, um, you know, where are the other Robin Williamses? And so the, your book, near the conclusion of your book, this is rather tender little story about you and Robin Williams going comic book shopping. Uh, I'll let you just say a little bit of it. I don't want to wreck the whole story for people who haven't read the book, but you know, we do see somebody no, else not- there. Yeah. Yeah, you're not spoiling anything. It, 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 I mean, it was uh, in the midst of working on a profile of him for the New York Times and in one of our interviews that happened to mention to him, we were just talking about comic books in general, which we were both fans of. And I mentioned a store that I shopped at in New York and he said, oh, that, that's where I go when I'm in New York and maybe you know the next time I'm in town, I'll, uh, I'll take you there. And uh, I didn't think it was anything that he uh, genuinely intended to do. But then uh, a few months later, I did get a call from him when he was in New York inviting me to uh, to meet him there. 
And uh, it was pretty fascinating just to be in his presence in just in public. He didn't have uh, any like security around him. He didn't have an, an assistant or, or a handler. It was just him, uh, you know, with no barrier between him and, and the people who were also at this store. And, and people really were in sort of genuine amazement. And this is still in 2009. So again, late in his career, it wasn't uh, peak Robin Williams, but he was one of those people who was just so famous and that people were so uh, just dazzled by that the, the notion that he was a kind of live human being that you could interact with and, and see in your day-to-day existence really kind of flummoxed people. You know, the one time that I ever was in the presence of Robin Williams was on the set of The World According to Garp. And and, oh, wow. and a bunch of journalists had been kind of ushered onto the set. It was uh, the scenes that were being filmed on an island out in the middle of Long Island Sound. And, and you know, I mean, we were just offered a chance to come see the set and I'd love the book and I just had interviewed Glenn Close for something else and I thought well this will be great and Robin Williams is like essentially there to greet the boat <laughs> as it lands and and he just started he felt under some obligation here he is you know in his first major film role you know and he's already a pretty big star from Mork and Mindy he felt under some obligation to entertain this bunch of journalists that he didn't know from Adam and and you know who were going to be there for a very short time and he's just started to do material and somebody would throw something out at him a little line and he'd riff off of it and I remember he did a whole Jack Daniels thing which I guess is maybe a little closer to the bone than I had realized but um and I, That's and, pretty hilarious. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, think it's it, it's very consistent. Yeah. I think. I mean, it it speaks to both that I think that the the desire of his, if if there were you know any any group of people and a group of people could be two people that on the one hand he has that compulsion to want to entertain them, but also I, I think a a need to kind of please people that that's something that he felt sort of obliged to do and that uh, there's also a, a little bit of self-protection in that that if he's performing or if he's in character he's also kind of keeping his authentic self uh, a little bit at, at a distance from you and it's uh, keeping him safe uh, from judgment. So yeah, Dave, reading the book, I I, I return to that question all the time. Um, yeah. You know that question of is there? I mean, the book ends. We should say, or I think one of the last scenes in the book is this uh, whole idea that before a concert, before a concert performance, he was alone behind a door for forty five minutes. Nobody was allowed to dis- dis- uh, disturb him or talk to him or bother him, and nobody really knew what he was doing in there. But he had to have that time, and and you use yeah. it as kind of a metaphor. But I, I do feel as though this. This is a guy who was sidestepping fundamental questions about himself, you know. And so you, for example, uh, quote the fact that he would say, you know, this may disappoint everybody, but I had a happy childhood. And then you explore his childhood. And, you know, it doesn't really seem that happy to me. And you describe his parents as these two people who were kind of into each other in, in a way that often didn't make room for him. They'd go on these long trips you know, and leave him alone with the help in this big mansion. I don't know. It it sounded like ultimately he was a little uncomfortable telling the truth about something as basic as that. Yeah, I think that that it becomes a hugely uh, important and influential dynamic in his life. That those formative years, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, his family was actually quite wealthy, and we think of uh, comedians often as coming from backgrounds of uh, some adversity or or hardship, and and certainly that was not Robin's life at all. That his uh, father was a very successful executive at Ford, and the family had to move a bit between uh, Illinois and Michigan to 
depending on where the company needed him at the time. And so uh, they're living in these uh, you know massive houses that with way more space than they need. The father, his father, is traveling quite a bit. His mother also was very uh, social and you know in, into uh, uh, you know fu- social functions, organizing parties, and and into his father and traveling a lot with him. Uh, both were on their second marriage. Each had had a child from a previous marriage who were not raised with Robin. So he grew up for a few years sort of believing himself to be an only child. And then when he was around eight or ten, learned about these two other half-brothers. So, uh, you know, the this, this sense of, uh, I, th- I think, uh, you know, in some way not getting the affirmation that, that he felt he needed or wanted and also a lot of the, the solitude uh, that was time for him to kind of develop his skills that he'd use as a stand-up and a performer. But that loneliness definitely lingered with him through the rest of his life. And, and Carolyn, Carolyn, if there's one theme that probably runs through the lives of people who are performatively funny, whether they're comedians or some other kind of version of that, is I think you learn early on that you can get some attention that way, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, my parents would tell you like that was uh, definitely an indication that I was going to be a performer was that, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is. And a lot of times like... So for someone like like Robin Williams, that that like sense of loneliness that you're talking about that he may have had as a child. And I think for for me, thinking of that with him, it kind of makes sense that he would create all these characters and these voices that he could do kind of to keep himself company. And um, I, I know that sometimes like for for me, that need for attention, like I find like I'm more I, I want to use performing to get attention, but in real life, I don't want attention. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, I dread. Yeah, <laughs> I dread <laughs> having to have a conversation like at a grocery store <laughs> or anywhere. Literally, like Grubhub is the best thing because I don't have to talk to anyone and uh, any anything where I don't have to talk to someone. So, and I think it's interesting that. Despite being like that, I am super eager to grab attention on a stage or or in any sort of uh, performing venue or any any sort of place where I can kind of be outside who who you actually are and and kind of hide behind that. So David Scott, really, the one thing yeah. that one thing that ties all this together. Well, go ahead. You're about to react to her, so go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, I, I th- it's interesting because uh, you know, just as as you're sort of you know talking about uh, yourself. I mean, uh, there there are you know stories that people told me. I mean, people who were very in, important in Robin's life, whether it was his first wife uh, Valerie Velarde or Pam Dauber, who of course was his co-star on Mork and Mindy. When they each of them were first introduced to him, uh, he basically put on a character for them that with Valerie. He, they met at a bar. He pretended to be a Frenchman the whole night. Uh, you know, with Pam Dauber, they meet at their first uh, publicity photo shoot for Mork and Mindy, and Robin pretends to be a Russian man. And again, it's this act of, on the one hand, wanting to you know entertain the other person or make them feel comfortable, but it's also on his part a little bit of uh, guarding himself. That if if he shows exact, you know, if he shows his true self to these people right away, and they were to reject him somehow, then that would be incredibly hurtful to him. And so this is, this is it's, you know, comedy as a, a sort of an act of self-protection. Right. I mean, there's a way in which the mask becomes comfortable. His idol, Jonathan Winter, yeah. Winters had, have tri- would have trouble even getting out of his Maud Frickert uh, character occasionally because, <laughs> I mean, he was like mental, really mentally ill at that point. But um, but yeah, I mean, the story that you tell in the book, just to w- once again emphasize it a little bit, he meets Valerie, and she's from New Haven, we should point that out. He meets uh, Valerie, and he spends the whole the whole night talking to her in a French accent. She does not know that he's not French. She ta- thinks she's talking to some French guy. I mean, he just doesn't drop it, right? 
Yeah, no, and I mean this is this is the night that they're they're both going to look back on as essentially their first date, and he's not even really himself. You know, she's totally taken by him, but she's not really seeing the the real man, and she's not going to totally get to know that person uh, for for a little while. And it's like he almost are, catfished are... her <laughs> <laughs> before there was such before a thing. Before there was such a thing, right. he's so innovative. Yeah. Right. So okay, we'll take a quick break here and god willing we will be back right after the proverbial this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God, it's early. <gasps> Picture a man going on a journey beyond sight and sound. He's left Crete. He's entered the demilitarized zone. All right. Hey, what is this demilitarized zone? Sounds like something out of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, no, don't go in there. Oh, hee ho, ho, chimen. Oh, look, you've landed in Saigon. You're among the little people now. We represent the Arvan Army, the Arvan Army. Oh, no, follow the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Follow the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Robin Williams. We're talking about him today with David Scoff, a cultural reporter for the New York Times and the author of Robin, a fascinating biography of this man, Carolyn Payne, a comedian, among many other things. So this is another, this is kind of a sad thing. First of all, we should say that um, when David Bowie died, Dave was nice enough to come on our show and we tried to get Carolyn on the show, but I was the one telling her that David Bowie had died so that uh-huh. it just wasn't a good thing. So now I have, today I have to be the person to tell her that Coco the gorilla uh, has died. And, and so we'll circle back to you for in a second, Carolyn. But you you know, of everything that I looked at to get ready for this, Dave, watching the mm. clip of Williams and Coco the Gorilla was so interesting to me because I felt like looking at his face, I was seeing something, you know, some little fragment of all that stuff that, that he really wasn't. Car- I mean, you don't have to, you can't pretend with animals. You can't impress a gorilla with how verbally funny you are <laughs> or how good your accents are, right? And so yeah. he's, I don't know, there was something very interesting going on there. Yeah, I think that that's a sign of real empathy, don't you think? That mm. if you can connect just with another, uh, another, just another living creature in that way, it has to be on a kind of a heart level or a soul level. Because the, you're right that all of our kind of uh, verbal, higher level communication is is useless in in those scenarios. And I think it really does sort of show you, uh, you, you know, just his Robin's ability, in particular, to uh, you know, to to sort of reach out in in that way that would whoever whatever he was dealing with it was always uh, you know always an attempt to understand that 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 other person or being in, in some way uh, okay now you can do your thing is it like comedians like Coco or something I, or? yeah I mean, Colin just shook my world telling me right when I got here that he burst out with Coco uh. the gorilla died and I I had to have a moment um, I I grew up loving Coco. There, there was that book that came out, yeah. like it, you know, all, where she had the kittens, all ball. the kitten, yeah, and um, uh, you know, 
watching, I remember seeing that video of Robin interacting with Coco and Robin Williams. One of the things about him that I think is true with a lot of a lot of comedians and maybe it's that need for attention in some ways. It, it has this childlike quality. And that was something that really like came out when you saw him interacting with Coco. There, it was like this very pure, playful uh, moment that that just was, you know, exactly like shield down or shield up rather, and just kind of. Uh, it, I, it was very sweet. And Coco, I mean, had a lot of those interactions, like the one with Mr. Rogers and, and Betty White, where you just saw. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm just shook by this <laughs> this Coco <laughs> news today. But, so, well, one, one of the ways this may be a forced segue, uh, but one of the things that comes out in your book, Dave, that may uh, suggest some kind of a relationship to Coco is that Robin Williams was, as we, I guess, know from Fisher King and other places, really hairy and smelled kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he certainly had a bohemian uh, period. I, I think that the, you know the transition from growing up in the Midwest to basically arriving in um, Marin County, California, in 1969, and the tail end of the Summer of Love, and into an extremely uh, liberal community, and, and and you know that's basically uh, you know the mindset that he went, took into college and to Juilliard, where he was very regarded as you know a very you know bohemian. Uh, figure and somebody who uh, you know didn't necessarily feel the need for uh, you know basic uh, hygienic rituals and that sort of thing. But yes, the, I mean the the hairiness was something that was part of him from very early on, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that that certainly was a, a sort of a prime requisite of his for uh, for most of his life. Yes. Right, and but you describe a you know sort of a. Depardieu like earthiness. I mean, I think Pam Dopper Dopper says that he would sit on her and fart on her. Um, yeah, well, I mean, they had a pretty you know unusual relationship in that way. That they, I mean, and, you know, they were both about the same age. They had both come, uh, you know, lived parts of their life in in Michigan, and they really had almost a kind of uh, a sibling like uh, you know interaction. That they both uh, you know really connected with each other in that way, and I think in some ways tried to look out for each other, but also I think. You you know, Dauber understood very clearly that Mork and Mindy was was you know Robin's vehicle. She mm-hmm. was essentially the uh, in in their in their double act the uh, the straight woman and there to react to his jokes and, and to be a kind of the, the the you know the the grounding force. He was the one who was allowed to kind of take off and go nuts and and uh, that was something that I think she had to uh, kind of get used to, especially in that first season of the show. So, Carolyn, uh, we know and. and reading uh, Dave's book. Uh, he's m- married to three very beautiful women and had kind of an interest, interest in other women at certain times. And, you know, and and this is a part of him that you don't really entirely relate to. Yeah, Robin Williams as a sex symbol is not something I really get. Um, <laughs> I, I think that he, you know, being a comic is a lot like being a rock star. You're up on stage in front of thousands, maybe millions of people, and there's like this like power and appeal that can come with that. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not hard to understand how like he would have had no trouble finding sex whenever he wanted it. I mean, personally, like I, you, I, you would not be one of those. I, solutions. I'd be, I'd be all set. Yeah, he's just a little too sweaty and <laughs> and, and hairy for me, but you know. Uh, <laughs> but there's also, I mean, there's like an intellectual aspect, like and in, in the the idea. I mean, he he just 
is such a or was such a brilliant man and and you know so funny like there's there's kind of that intellectual attraction that probably factored into this as well and it certainly sounds like that with his relationship with Pam yeah never boring anyway yeah um, <laughs> all right so we're going to talk more uh, with Dave about his book I want to get into uh, the Robin Williams movie career we'll grab a quick break and we'll uh, talk after that you got it? I think so, yeah. And I've got a lot of muscle, and I only got one eye, and I never hurt nobody, and I'll never tell a lie. Top to me, bottom, from the bottom to me, top. Hey, Alexander Higgs, House of Missiles. Come on down. Let me show you someone. We got this lovely ICBM here. They can't hear you coming. Boom, they blow the off the world. Look at this over here. We got a designer cruise missile. Ooh, la, la, va, boom. Look at that there. Look at this one over here. What is a cruise missile? What is a cruise missile? The missile goes, oh, look, a city, let's destroy it. <laughs> Every time I do that, I feel like Richard Simmons. Let's go, girls, let's go. Five, six, seven, and move it, move it, move it, move it. The man is so cruel to women and they love it. He goes, you call those i I've seen better lumps than oatmeal. <laughs> Put them together, honey, make one good one. Let's go. Those are not calves, those are steers. Let's move it. You may have had an hourglass figure, but your time is up. Let's go. Let's move now, let's go. The man has a house with nothing but closets, so he can go, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in. Strange. People, people over here are going, what the hell's he doing now? <laughs> Catch up. From An Evening with Robin Williams, uh, we're talking about him today with David Scoff, a cultural reporter for The New York Times and the author of Robin, a uh, uh, fascinating biography of this man, Carolyn Payne, uh, a comedian, among many other things. So uh, first of all, I wanted I have to do some thank yous right here. Uh, Jonathan McNichol, of course, is the person who produced this episode of our show. Betsy Kaplan's on the board. Uh, Jason Perez is our uh, terrific intern. Uh, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin Hart. This uh, That little clip reminds me of something that I said to Jonathan, the producer, before I went on the air today, which is you watch some of his old stuff and you realize he he couldn't do some of this stuff now you can't just be funny pretending to be gay or pretending to be black or just having an indian accent or there's like a whole lot of things that tripwires that he would kick now that would would kind of go go off in his face a little bit i'm sure he'd find uh, something else to do um dave i have to talk there's one thing that you bring up in the book, and I was so happy you did it, because it was when I just absolutely decided that this guy was a genius, and we couldn't find the clip today, and I'm not sure it would work on the radio. But pretty early in his career, <laughs> he did a thing where he he talked about, he said, this is what it li- it's like when a comedian bites the big, big one. And on stage, yeah. he simulated bombing as a comedian, where he would throw to himself in this kind of simulated control room, running around, flipping switches, uh, trying to access material. There's this Peter Lorre voice that's kind of chewing him out for doing pee-pee caca. You know, it is just the most remarkably meta, self-doubting thing I've ever seen a comedian do, and no other person could possibly do it. Yeah, I think it, it, it sort of recalls. I think one of the other one of the other bits of his that you played at the beginning, where he is, you know, imagining. He basically he's sort of splitting his consciousness into different parts and playing playing all of them sort of in real time. But as you say, in reaction to a joke of his failing, and I, even though it is uh, essentially a humorous routine, it is certainly grounded in a reality for him, which is a fear of failure and a fear of rejection and all the different parts of him that are 
activated when that would occur on stage, <laughs> which didn't happen all that often, but it certainly uh, befell him at the start of his career. And it, it, the routine certainly shows you the extent to which he he did or had thought about uh, how it felt to be rejected by an audience and, and how much that wounded him. And that would uh, certainly across uh, his film career where it, you know you had very sort of tangible uh, indicators of whether you were succeeding or failing. You had box office results. You had uh, you know movie reviews. You had award nominations and victories that told you pretty quickly if you were doing the right thing or not. And those were things he took very much to heart over the course of his career. Right. There's one point that, I, that you make in the book that I think is really important. I mean, it's actually a bunch of different points. And that is everything that we just heard in both of the Ferguson clip and that one, these melanges of comedy. There's a lot of things in there besides just the illusion he's projecting that he can just go like this, you know. And, and, and you know, there is, for example, a, a lot of it is a little bit more planned out. You describe the way in which he kind of, he and his publicists kind of circulated the idea, prom- promoted the idea that a a lot of what he did on Mork and Mindy was completely improvised, that he would be given just pages of blank space to, to work in. That wasn't true. And sometimes his improvisations bombed and he had to go to the material that had been written for him, which actually worked better. There's also, of course, this longstanding thing that other comedians were very distrustful of him uh, because he, he might steal their material or just repurpose yeah. it for his own use. And, and Billy Crystal, one of his closest friends, says a really interesting thing, which is it's not the material a lot of the times. It isn't that the the joke is so great that he's saying it's that he's doing it in just a, it's it's the difference between Bill Russell and Michael Jordan. You know, they're both great, <laughs> but Michael Jordan is moving a lot faster than Bill Russell ever could. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, one of the first places that he and Billy Crystal crossed paths uh, was in 1978 at this uh, benefit concert for, uh, you know, a, a venue in San Francisco that was, uh, you know, kind of at, at risk of, of shutting down where they, the boarding house where they'd both, it was really more of a, a rock uh, venue, but they both pr- played there as uh, comedians. And so, uh, you know, at that point, uh, they had the same managers and they weren't yet friends. They were kind of, uh, you know, sniffing each other out a little bit to see, well, is this person going to be uh, a rival of mine? Is he going to take work away from me? And uh, Billy at that point was he, – he'd already finished his first season on Soap and was about to start season two. He knew that Robin was about to do his first season on Mork and Mindy and Billy was very openly uh, or at least in retrospect envious of, of Robin because on, on Soap, even though Billy was playing this kind of renowned character, one of the first openly gay characters on uh, episodic TV. It was that was the only character he could play on that show. Whereas he knew that Robin going into Mork and Mindy could basically use that as a vehicle to play whoever he wanted and do whatever he wanted it, within the very sort of generous, generous boundaries of that character. And it was something that uh, you know a, a, he was he was openly jealous of. So there's this Robin Williams, uh, the Robin Williams we've been hearing and talking about here. There's also an actor, a Juilliard trained actor um, who in the early stages, I think, really struggles, really toggles between those two things. And and the, some of the acting teachers that you talked to, Dave, were a little distrustful of him. I, one of them says something like, you know, he never really had a foundation uh, for his acting. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, he certainly. I mean, even even by the time he got to Juilliard, I mean, he had put in a few years. He he went for three years to the College of Marin, which is actually a two year <laughs> school <laughs> in uh, Northern California. But he had focused primarily on acting there and been in a lot of stage productions. You can literally read newspaper reviews of him playing Fagin in Oliver or Snoopy in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, getting great notices there. So by the time he came to Juilliard, they knew he was very. T- talented. But he also, they felt, uh, and this will not surprise you, that he wasn't very disciplined and that, you know, he kind of chafed at the idea of structure. And even while he was at Juilliard, he was still slipping out to do mime performances on the street and other <laughs> other kinds of, of acting. And not that the mime uh, upset the Juilliard faculty, but just the idea that they, they couldn't totally regulate this guy that, you know, he, I mean, he was in student productions there. He got along well. He was well regarded. But ultimately, he withdrew from the school as a kind of mutual decision. He didn't finish his uh, his training there in part because uh, you know, he couldn't get with the program. I mean, Carolyn, this is an interesting thing to watch too, right? I mean, and it's you know anybody who's funny and who once again you know when you're young you discover you can get some attention if you crave attention from your parents or whoever by being funny. It's a whole different equation when you're doing acting. You've done some acting and mm-hmm. comedic series and stuff like that. I'm I'm not sure if you've ever done like. Maggie and Tennessee Williams, or anything like that. Uh, but, you know. yeah, I mean, I've done I've done some Shakespeare and mm. and things like that, uh, and I, I did some Moliere. I mean, that's comedy, that's right, I, I forget, guess. Forget but yeah, <laughs> you know. But um, I I think that. You know, acting and comedy are two very different things, but there is often a crossover. Like you see a lot of comedians crossover into into acting and you see some actors, you know, attempt stand up comedy to try to help themselves with uh, like improv skills and things like that. But I think acting is a much more it's a disciplined thing. And you're you're working with others. There's and I think that that's where Robin Williams, like as as an actor, I mean, he would have been fascinating to work with because I feel like you would have never gotten the same thing twice from him. Um, I think it would have kept, it, it would have really just been a, you have to stay on your toes to keep up with him and run as fast as you can because he's still going to outrun you in everything you do. Well, Dave, I, I jumped ahead in your book to the section about Fisher King because when, that's okay. if, if people ask me, well, I mean, I went back to, but um, uh, <laughs> but um, when people ask me what my favorite movie is, I'm as likely to say Fisher King as any other movie. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that you, I mean, to Carolyn's point, you know, is Jeff Bridges came aboard uh, on this, this movie had two male uh, leads to it. Uh, Jeff Bridges plays this incredibly kind of jaded uh, and destructive shock jock who uh, unintentionally uh, causes the the death of a whole, whole group of people. And Robin Williams plays this guy who's basically a crazy person, more or less, living on the streets <laughs> in the grip of this kind of fusion of Robin Hood and Arthurian romance. Do you know who I am? I'm drawing a blank. Well, take a guess. Let him guess. Hmm? Uh. Oh, you know, I don't know, you seem to be uh, some kind of vigilante. Well, that happens along the way, of course, but here's a clue. A hood ornament. No. I'm a knight on a special quest. And I need help. Quest. That's why they sent you. A little... Yes, yes. You see, they work for him. So do I. Him? God. I'm the janitor of God. 
And you say that Bridges showed up thinking, well, he's going to be wacky funny. You know, I'm ready for that. And really kind of yeah. found a slightly different person there. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so fascinating because the first of all, the the role that Bridges is playing is a little bit against type for him. That he's the much more kind of uh, buttoned up character. The more the, he's almost this kind of uh, uh, gloss on uh, Howard Stern or Don Imus, uh, not mm. not the most likable uh, warm guy. And and you know, it, it, he had not worked with Robin to that point and knew him only by reputation. And and you know, Robin's film career was really in a groove at that. point point that he had done uh, certainly Good Morning Vietnam, which was a huge breakout for him. He had done Dead Poet Society, which was a more subdued character, but also Robin had this reputation for being uh, just this electric uh, comedian and, and certainly for wanting to improvise a lot, not only on stage, but in, in his film roles. And so that's the kind of person that uh, you know Bridges was expecting. And, and he talked about a, a scene that he has to film where you know basically, you know, he He's in in a coma. Uh, you know the character is, and and just basically having to talk to him while he's in a coma, so he can't react and not not knowing how Robin is going to play that scene, and actually finding him to be very uh, tender and very attuned to it, and not not trying to turn it into uh, a, a, a joke or a bit, but taking it uh, very seriously. And I mean uh, Terry Gilliam, as you saw in the book, I mean told some pretty intense stories from that movie about how seriously Robin yes. uh, took it and how much he got into that character of Parry. Right. At one point, he's Williams is pushing himself kind of physically in addition to everything else. Yeah. And finally, uh, Gilliam says, this isn't good for you. I mean, he just gets, yeah. makes him just stop and take it down. You know, so I think, Carolyn, you can kind of divide the Williams career between some of these roles where he really mutes everything that we know about him. And, and as he moves along as an actor, is able to submerge himself into these roles. So whether it's Goodwill Hunting or, or Awakening, uh, or, or Fisher King, uh, he's able to kind of quiet down some of that, you know, just incredibly virtuoso comedy stuff that he can do. And then there are other roles that just let him do that, whether it's Good Morning Vietnam or I think maybe your favorite Aladdin. Is, yeah. Uh, I, I, I really so I mean Aladdin is where his performance as the genie in Aladdin I think is brilliant because you it, it's not you're not seeing his face but you can't it literally could not have been any other actor and I think as far as like voiceover work goes I, I think that that is one of the best voiceover work performances that I, I can think of um, and I, I recently rewatched Aladdin. It was like on TV and I hadn't seen it since I was a, a kid. And it's still just so I think even more so I had even more respect for uh, how he utilizes the incredible instrument he had of this like voice to cr- create these characters and these nuances and everything. So I think that's to, to me, that is still one of Robin Williams best performances. Um, yeah, yeah I, no, I, th- I think it's 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 yeah. I was going to say. I mean, if you if you just listen to it as a, as a performance, it's actually. I mean, he's you know he's he's going into a million voices and characters and bits, but it's also you can hear how relaxed he is. That there is something about uh, you, you know being given the freedom to just go wild. Don't worry about sort of putting the brakes on yourself or having to rein yourself in. That I think is actually very uh, comfortable for him, and you can really hear it in. Uh, his delivery. 
David, I said that your book, and it really is a wonderful book. I'm not just saying this, but it has this kind of even more than most life stories. It really does have this spring, summer, fall, winter quality to it. And the winter is a very harsh winter. And so the, the death which you go through is, you know, it's almost like there's four or five deaths that are digested by the public and, and people around him slowly. You know, suicide, Parkinson's, depression, uh, ultimately Lewy body uh, um, problems, which are sort of, you know, a, a con- condition that's not Alzheimer's, but probably resembles Alzheimer's more than anything else. This His final act was, once again, this very complicated, layered set of questions. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's it's understandable in a sense that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of information in the immediate aftermath of his death because it was so shocking not only to the wider world but certainly to uh, his family and the people that knew him intimately. And it was difficult for them, I think, to uh, try to determine how they should communicate this uh, to, to people. And it's 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 not an easy thing. And, and so, you know, there was a period of about a week where there was just a kind of total vacuum. And so people, you know, made just based on whatever, you know, little information that was out made sort of certain assumptions about, you know, why he'd taken his life. And and people kind of focused on, well, you know, was he depressed or disappointed about his career? And, you know, you know, none of which, again, I understand why people made those kinds of assumptions, but it wasn't it wasn't valid. It wasn't based on what had happened. And then about a week later, it can't, you know, his widow put out a statement and this was true that in in Robin's own lifetime he had been given a diagnosis of of Parkinson's disease, and so I think that may have sort of furthered the assumption that it was, uh, you know, a, a deliberate choice on his part. So it was not until many months after his death, when his autopsy was released, and part of which was, uh, you know, they analyzed samples of his brain tissue and and, and found evidence of. Uh, Louis body disease or Louis body uh, dementia, which is you know a, a, a degenerative condition of the brain. It is similar to, to Parkinson's, but it's not just attacking the motor part of the brain. It's parts of the brain that involve cognition and reasoning and, and decision making. And so, you know, I mean, what he was experiencing was was quite uh, terrible in the sense that people who have this can have paranoia, mood swings. Some people have hallucinations. They may shut down in their own body. So, I mean, you can't really even say with certainty that when he died, he knew exactly what he was doing or if he sort of understood, you know, was was did he was he aware of who he was and what he was doing at the time? It's really it's really hard to say. Right. So, yeah, reading your book and reading more about Louis Vadi than I had previously known, it struck me that some of those really hallucinatory episodes that Perry, like his character in Fisher King has, may have resembled some of the realities of the end of his life. We're going to end on, end this conversation about Robin Williams on a happier note. We're going to end it in a way that will make Carolyn Payne happy especially. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks to everybody who helped, uh, as well as some of the people who hindered. They play a role, too. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow, unless for some reason we, we don't show up. I'm on the job, you big nabob. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a Never had a friend like me. Ha.